believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. I'm sitting with Anne-Marie McKay, who is a living legend. She has birthed the careers of some incredible directors from Michael Bay, Antoine Fukua, Sofia Coppola, and so many more. She's produced music videos for Madonna. She's an accomplished film producer and screenwriter, novelist, and creator of the infamous Magus deck, which you're going to learn some more about. When I met Anne-Marie, she is stunning. She has ice blonde hair, she has light, gorgeous light eyes, and she has the warmest energy. When you talk to Anne-Marie, it's like being wrapped in a hug, and I don't have any other way to put it because you just feel extremely held. I'm so excited to share with you her stories, her journey, because they've been a big part of my personal growth. And so thank you, Anne-Marie, for being here. Thank you for inviting me to the show. Um, it's really lovely to see you again. I know. It's been a while. It's been a while. You've been busy writing. And I've been busy writing, yeah, for the last two years. I, I've been building companies my whole uh, professional career, starting with propaganda films, and then Palomar Pictures, and then a games company called Riddle Entertainment. And then finally, I built or helped uh, rebuild a company for Jesse Dillon, who was one of my directors, that's Bob's eldest son, called Wondrous. So I decided to stop doing that because it's time-consuming, extremely rewarding, but I always wanted to write. So I said, okay, if not now, when? So I took, it's been two years, and I've been writing daily for two years with lots of good results. And not just one book, guys, multiple books, okay? (laughs) Yes, at least four novels at this point, uh, plus I actually finished The Maker's Chronicles, which is based on the card deck. So I'm thrilled that that's finally out there and ready to go, because I think it's a wonderful, it's a young adult fantasy, but it really does um, explain the world of the card deck in a more figurative, perhaps, way. So it's, it's a great companion piece for the deck itself. Would you share with everyone the genesis of the deck? Yeah, absolutely. So many years ago now, I owned a very successful production company. We were really at the top of our game. This was after Propaganda Films, which I also um, was one of the original members of that particular company. And suddenly everything that could go wrong went wrong. My business partner had some personal issues and he wanted to bow out of the company. He basically needed uh, money. He needed money. And until then, we had been, you know, on a par. We had total equality in that respect. I was also in a personal relationship that was really beginning to show signs of, you know, it's not going to happen. And it was one of those times in my life where spiritually I really felt brought to my knees. It was though my whole world, as I knew it, was beginning to unravel. I didn't really have solutions. As a good businesswoman, I knew what to do, but it was almost the end of the dream. And that was really, really hard for me. 
So I was working with a Tibetan meditation teacher at the time who was also a therapist. And she said, look, in order to really explore what you're going through, try writing with your non-dominant hand because it can access the part of you that is either repressed or hurting or you're revisiting some kind of early trauma. So I started to do that and it was like, it was very childish what came through, but it was almost like I was having a spiritual tantrum. You know, it was like, why me? I'm so good. I'm a good person. You know, why is this happening to me? And it really was almost like the voice of a child, of a little kid that was, didn't understand why they were being bullied or whatever. Anyway, long story short, um, over time, it became a process of what is called automatic writing because I found that I was literally allowing myself to go deeper and deeper and talk you know, more and more personally in my writing, in my automatic writing. And suddenly I realized that there was this incredibly wise and benevolent other voice that responded. So that when I stopped the process of automatic writing, I could read it back and it was as though I was reading it for the first time, but with these incredible answers that were universally wise. I like to think it's the higher self, the the universal kind of intelligence that we all have, that we all share, but it was impossible to really know what was going on, but it just continued. And Over the next year, I sold my part of that company and did the right thing as as a business person. And I sort of hibernated for a while and I just worked with the voice. And so over probably a year, um, I had these conversations that I documented, that they were all written. Can I ask how you knew to work with the voice? Do you know, it's, it's an amazing thing, but it's almost like once you tap into something of that nature, it has its own energy and its own flow. It's like unstoppable. As just a mere human being, it's a wonderful resource to go to uh, because you can find, you know, after I got through my personal dilemmas, I found I could have conversations with that voice, including things like uh, explain the nature of miracles or this generation coming up, what is, what is the um, internet going to do? What's, how's that going to show up in future generations? So it became more universal. I'm not saying that the answers I got were absolutely, you know, the only answer or the best answer or whatever. But for me, I just decided that this resonated with truth. And it was something that I felt... At some stage, maybe I will share it with the world. But for now, it was private. I went, my people are Scottish. And I, I have a coal mining family background. And my parents were elderly, so I had gone back to visit with them. And my mother had said, would I mind climbing into the attic and sort of sorting through all the children's stuff? I've got brothers. And, you know, let get rid of the things or keep the things that you want, including the other kids. So I did. And while I was up there, I discovered uh, a large brown envelope that was full of tiny uh, miniature intaglio etchings. When I was at college, my main subjects were literature, English literature and theatre. But I also majored in printmaking, which was something I loved. They were beautiful. They were what we call in in printmaking, they were um, 
accidents. In other words, they hadn't registered properly or the color had spilt or something had happened. I had kept them. They were all rejects. I almost threw them away. And then I thought, it's just an envelope. I'll take this back to America with me. What the heck? So I did. And I had a friend visiting a a judge and a very prominent divorce attorney was visiting my house. And I emptied the envelope onto the kitchen counter. And she went, oh, my God, look at that. That looks like a board game. And indeed it did. It fell in such a way that just with pushing some of these little pictures in one way or the other, you had a complete, almost a complete square, like a board game. What's interesting about that is the Tibetan meditation teacher that I talked about, we had done a meditation together and she's quite psychic as well, months before, and she suddenly stopped in the middle of it and she said, Anne-Marie, you're going to create a board game. And I laughed because I literally was, I have brothers, as I said, I literally was that kid. Whenever I wanted to play Monopoly or something else, the cry would go up, get her out of here, mom. She's so stupid. She's spoiling the game. She doesn't understand. So (laughs) I literally grew up believing that as far as myself and board games were concerned, that was never going to be something that I would take to. So I laughed, but I and I forgot about it. But now here's my best friend saying, that looks like a board game. Well, I went into my office right there and then. I took the little pictures with me. Um, within 48 hours, I had created the world of the Magus. And with that, I matched the little gems of truth that I'd been channeling for over a year to each of those pictures and created the entire mythology behind it. Very Jungian. The mega deck is not the tarot. It's a card deck, but it's not the tarot. Everything is basically is the unconscious realm. It symbolizes the unconscious realm. And my belief is that we can delve into that unconscious realm and come up with answers that are true for us, that resonate with us. So the wisdom of the heart, not the wisdom of the mind. So that's what it's based on. Um, it's incredibly effective. I did do a prototype of the board itself. That was the first thing I did at home. People were crazy about it. I had hundreds of board game parties, Magus parties at the house where people came and played, a lot of people from my industry. Then I took it to the e-conference, you know, which is for games. And of course, this was just 2000. And of course, those guys went crazy and they're like, oh my God, this is it, you know. Monopoly for the millennium and stuff like that. But the problem was uh, they wanted to dumb it down. They wanted to call it the goddess game or the new Ouija board or whatever, and that's not what it is. And I'd always envisaged it as a high-end, beautiful, like a beautiful chess set that could live in your living room on a table and it would always be there and you could access the truth any time. So despite the fact I would have loved the money, I walked away from that. But I couldn't walk away from the information because by now I had a following. And people would literally, you know, relatively well-known people, well, very well-known people, actually, um, I won't say the names, but they would call me from a set and say, oh, my God, I need to talk to the makers. You know, my agent's here. And they're offering me this, but I think I should go there. I, I need, I need to have a... So I had to be careful about that because what I called it was prediction addiction. People became so obsessed 
with talking to the Magus or, you know, playing the game, that they were leading their lives accordingly. And that's not what it's for. You use it when you really want real information and you don't use it for anything trivial. It's, it's that pure and powerful in, in its own right. In the end, I decided to publish, I create the deck out of the board game, publish, self-publish that. It was expensive because, of course, during that period, I was all about, has to be made in America. And, you know, it has to be, <laughs> has to be recycled paper. So that cost a lot. But I made about 2,000 and they sold out within two weeks. And so there was a wonderful, there were two stores in LA on Melrose and one was the Vodi Tree. I would do meetings there and hold readings for groups of people. And it was packed every time, which was fabulous. But the one thing that really surprised me was that a lot of my people, my returning clients were young men. I thought this was, you know, everybody told me, oh, this this is a female thing. This is the women will want this. But when I talked to my young acolytes, they told me, these young men, they said, the reason why we love the world of the Magus is because it's not woo-woo. It's not fairies and angels and all that other stuff. You know, it's very intelligent and it resonates and we feel very comfortable using the cards. So that was rather lengthy, but that's the world of the Magus that I created. But I think it's really accessible. And the reason I really connect with the Magus versus other forms of decks is because it's also very, the way that you've set it up is very truth, but solution oriented, right? Like there's something about it where you're revealing not only the truth of where you're at, but you're getting a solution and an outcome. And whether or not you understand what that solution is or how to apply it to your life is a whole other bag, right? But I remember the first time you gave me a reading, and I remember this forever, because it fundamentally changed how I understood myself. So we did this reading, and the outcome was this card, Nebuchadnezzar. At the time, I'd never heard this word, and Anne-Marie freaks out a bit. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I'm like, what? What is Nebuchadnezzar? I don't even know. Well, why don't you tell them what Nebuchadnezzar is, and then I'll finish the story, because it sounds better coming from you. And that particular card in my deck is the wealth card, but it's 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 very interesting because it's wealth through labor. In other words, it, 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 this this character is the empire builder, as he was actually in ancient Persia. But it kind of is suggesting to you that you're going to have to do it on your own, and it's going to take a lot. And it, it really is you've got to put in your sweat equity. It's not about somebody giving you a fabulous opportunity or winning the lotto or getting an inheritance. That's not, you're born, you were born with this in you to create great wealth, but it has to be through your own efforts. And if you ignore that aspect of it and just try to wing in or hope for the best or do wishful thinking, isn't going to happen. But you got it again and again and again. (laughs) I kept pulling this card. And at the time I was building my company, which was really, really hard. It was really, really hard. And it felt to me like an affirmation of what I knew about myself, which was that I believe that I'm, you know, working towards this abundance, but that it was also like confirmation for me from the universe that I should have faith that I'm on the right path. Right. 
absolutely. The expression of how that's going to be built, I think, is evolving and changing as we speak. And for me, it's been interesting. But looking back on sort of, you told me it was like blood, sweat, and tears. You're going to build this through blood, sweat, and tears. And you could not have been more accurate. <laughs> it has been blood, sweat, and tears. And it's, you know, still, it, it, I think it's it goes through waves, but it's never without effort. I mean, that's certainly like everything that I've worked on has been through my sort of sheer will. And it, But at the time, it was really something that I carried with me every time that it got hard because it got hard a lot, like a lot, a lot. And so it was very profound for me. And it's still the deck that I, I go back to when not all the time, right? I, mean, I don't use it that freely, but it's really when I have a real question and something that I'm really struggling with to sort of, you know, give me that guidance or affirmation or confirmation for, you know, most of the time, I think we already know the answer. It's just the the extra affirmation. And so it's just been a very life-changing tool for me that, you know, I think everyone should know about because we all have a bunch of tools in our box, but this is one that was really sort of imprinted on my life path as like, there's like a post, I also there's like a pre and post moment. This was like a post Magus moment where I couldn't imagine that I lived life pre Magus. That's so wonderful. Beautiful thing to say. It's true. Yeah. I don't overuse the deck myself. I mean, I, I do readings all the time for people, but I actually only use it as you've just described when I really feel like I'm at a crossroads, I like to think that what the Megas deck does as well for you is it develops your, what I call emotional intelligence, which is something that I think with younger generations at the moment with the internet, et cetera, brilliant young people, so adept in every way, much more adept than I am when it comes to technology and other kinds of uh, resources. But it feels to me that, that they still need something. They need to develop their intuition because everything else they've developed. And what the Magus deck does, it really builds that muscle, the intuitive part of us that allows us to um, work things out from a feeling, emotional response, as opposed to the brain. And so I'm, I'm finding that more and more young people are gravitating to that kind of experience just because there's really nothing else like that out there. I mean, there are great things like the I Ching, of course, and the runes, uh, both of which um, I studied when I was younger. But again, maybe what the Magus deck has going for you is it's reflecting totally your own unconscious realm. So you can't, it can't lie. And it's just a question of whether you can accept the information you're getting. And I think for a lot of people, they, they've they lost touch with their gut or their instincts or their intuitive self, right? I've built sort of my whole career on gut and instinct. So I'm, I think I'm more tapped in than most people. But I know a lot of people where they've had to learn to get back into understanding what their body is telling them. And so it's such a great skill. I think this is also why a lot of young men flock to it, right? Because it's a solution-based tactical answer to this thing that society has trained them to undervalue and not be as in touch with, right? Absolutely, absolutely well said. That's it, exactly. It's a very, very powerful tool. So I'm excited. We'll put the information so everyone can find the Mega Stack, um, and I hope you use it in your daily lives. I want to also talk about the other work that you do because you do so much. And I want you to talk about screenwriting and sort of your journey to step from building all these businesses and birthing all these careers to being like, I have my own career to birth. Well, uh, it's been a long time coming. 
But, you know, I started life as a teacher in a very rough part of London, and I taught adolescence. And it was during the skin head era. So we were having a lot of difficulty with what were called bother boys and, you know, their um, the infighting that happened both on the streets but within the classroom with our young Sikh population. A lot of kids had come, um, you know, the Ugandan Indians had arrived. And, you know, as always, there was that sort of strange, almost gang warfare. But I've always believed that there's something in every individual that's special and shiny and unique. So what I understood about those kids was, and I taught English, obviously, they needed to see life from a different perspective. I understood that they had, you know, difficult home lives and that a lot of the aggression that I saw uh, and experienced was coming out of an inner sorrow, an inner hurt, and a lot of anger. So I wanted to turn my classroom into a, a place where people could express freely, but at the same time learn and have the skills that I knew they needed to have in order to communicate who they were. So I went off the curriculum, which was basically, you know, Chaucer and William Shakespeare, which was not going to work with this particular crowd. And I sort of went into something a little bit different. I started to introduce into the classroom playwrights like Ionesco and Harold Pinter, Theatre of the Absurd. And at the same time, I got in touch with what were called the Mersey Sound poets, who were friends of John Lennon and started to put them on a train from Liverpool and invite them down to talk to my 16-year-olds so that they could understand that poetry and playwriting could be as contemporary and as natural to everyone. It didn't have to be Shakespeare. And sure enough, my kids started to say things like, well, go on, ma'am. They're just talking to each other, aren't they? Um, God can do that. So I said, yes, you can. So why don't we do that? So we started writing plays and we started writing poetry. And it was very simple, like the great poet, a Liverpudlian poet, Roger McGough. He would write little verses like, a nun in a fish shop, standing in a queue, wondering what it's like to buy fish and chips for two. And the kids loved it. I could do that. I can write that. Go for it. Let's do it. That became extremely successful and joyful. And the violence started to sort of basically calm down and people were more interested. Instead of putting knives into the young Sikh's turban, they were more interested in finding out, you know, who was writing what and what we were doing. And then I, what I did the next thing around was I brought music into the classroom. So for a whole lesson, I would just play Dark Side of the Moon. And all I said was, okay, I want you to just write whatever you feel as this is playing. They didn't realize that they were actually doing creative essays. They were like, you know, they went deep. They talked about everything. We got them to read it out. You know, it was a, it was a remarkable transformation. But my point about that was the gold in everyone. So after that, I came back to England and I was introduced well, the first thing is, because I'd been a printmaker make, at college, I took to photographic printing, darkroom printing. So I got hired into that world. And because I'd studied theatre, I understood set building and makeup and 
lighting and everything else. So I became a photographer's assistant. Um, and out of that, I was given the opportunity to represent and produce uh, for what was fast becoming the new industry, which was music video. So I worked in Neil's Yard, Covent Garden in London, and built my first company there and represented a handful of directors. The interesting thing about England at the time was people didn't go to film school. They came out of art school. So when we were working with bands like The Fix or The Clash or The Members or The Stranglers or whoever it was, there was a much more revolutionary, simple approach. You know, throw them onto a white psych and just have them do what they do. Whereas in America, what was happening at the same time, because people were coming out of film school here, everything was a little mini musical. Lots of people singing, dancing on stage and doing stuff and like, you know, erratic and literally small musicals. But the Americans started to see what we were doing and particularly what I was doing and said, well, you know what? We love this. We want this. So I got exported to America and I started propaganda films. So go back to the original thing. Those young people that I taught back when, when I found that shiny piece inside of them and explored it and built it, they became whole. You know, they, they, they had career, they had ambitions, they had careers. It may not have been terribly fancy, but, you know, they became ambitious in the right way. They just didn't settle to go into a factory or become a laborer. You know, they started to get a little bit more artistic in their ambitions. And what I noticed with the, um, with the young directors in America was the same thing. So they would come to me and they would have nothing. There were no reels or anything, uh, but they had this passion. Um, sometimes they were poets. Sometimes they were photographers. Sometimes they were choreographers. Sometimes they simply liked to tell stories. So that first flush of great directors, the David Finchers, the Antoine Fuqua's, the Michel Gondry's, you know, the Michael Bay's, um, the Alex Perez's, all of those people that I personally launched into the industry were what I call, it was about discovering the gold. And as soon as you found that gold, I knew because I'd been a teacher how to build on that, how to represent them, how to create opportunities, and how to allow them really to shine. And that sort of part of me made for a hugely successful company in propaganda films, which was the first of its kind, the biggest of its kind. And out of that, you know, the awards were flying in. Um, you know, I probably, I don't know, I've, I've, I've produced hundreds, hundreds of music videos, a lot of award winners. So maybe 12 for Madonna, 14 for Janet Jackson, Aerosmith, all the Guns N' Roses, you know, on and on and on and on. Uh, and it was the halcyon days of music video because there was more and more money to spend. And it was about really pushing the artistic envelope. We started to play with uh, special effects, animation, uh, different kinds of lighting, different kinds of editing, different kinds of ways of photographing people or capturing images. And it was a revolution in itself. You know, it changed the way media is seen today. It started to affect, and this is something I moved into, commercials, because agencies were calling and saying, oh, can you send me that latest 
Hooters video, whatever it happened to be, or Billy Idol video or whatever. And I'd say, ultimately, I didn't mind, but ultimately I said, why, why are you so interested in what we're doing? They said, well, you've managed to capture an audience, i.e. the young market that we haven't been able to capture. So I said, well, it's easy. Why don't you just hire my directors? Because it's their original thoughts that you're seeing on the music video, even though I was writing a lot of them, but that's just a skill I have. I was ghostwriting a lot of the ideas for the directors. And they went, wow, what a good idea. So now we created another huge industry, which was commercial advertising. Then all of a sudden people were, and we hooked up with CAA, then all of a sudden they were saying, well, can you do something with our directors? So here comes David Lynch and we developed Twin Peaks. And then, you know, the people are coming and saying, well, these kids are great. They're, they're so young. They're so fresh. They're so different. Perhaps they want to do a movie. So Fincher then does Alien 3. And so it really was um, the birth of a new way of looking at media and it changed everything. To this day, everything. No, I mean, it's remarkable that you got to live and experience all those sort of, you know, with the rise of the director, right, as, yeah. as a star, the rise of how we experience music, right. this visual format, the peak of it all mm -hmm. with the biggest amount of money ever going to that space. While this is all happening, was there ever a moment where you were like, I'm sure it was also very overwhelming, you're just moving so fast. Was, was there ever a moment where you were like, I'm really good at this? but my heart yeah. really wants to do this. Did you ever have that tension of like, I want to be the one, you know, you're writing for these directors, you're writing these ideas. Yes. I, I think um, what it was overwhelming and it was fast paced and it was, you know, it was literally worked every weekend and sometimes were up until five in the morning in the edit bay, but I was younger then as well. But then what I started to see was that hunger, that vision that I had for others, for the people that I represented, started to get a little bit knocked about by, I guess, I don't want to say fear and greed because that sounds so negative, but I remember sitting in a staff meeting um, at that company, Propaganda, at one point, and one of the executives saying to me, we, we need to find a car guy. And I, I remember saying, uh, a what guy? He said, you know, you, somebody who can shoot cars, there's a lot of money in that, car, car commercials, that's what we need. And it began to ring bells, you know, alarm bells for me because my job and my vision for the company and everything I did was based on go out there into the world, Europe, Australia, America, England, doesn't matter, and just find the best creative people you can find and then develop and manage their careers and then launch them into the industry. And now people were talking about, we want the money. And I, like my belief has always been in everything I've done, um, pursue excellence and the money comes. It's just the way it is in life. If you pursue the money, excellence starts to fade and ultimately you can stay alive for a while, but you know, mediocrity will kill any creative organization it faster than anything else. So then the next thing was I heard that um, one of the big corporations wanted to buy the company and I knew I couldn't survive with a bunch of accountants and attorneys basically now saying, oh, we need a car guy. You know, same deal. It was always going to be the same deal. 
So um, I thought, okay, here's my time. I'll walk away from this amazing job and I'll write. And I'm not afraid to do that. I'll travel and then I'll write. And uh, I left the job. People couldn't believe that I would do that. But I did. Um, And I began to travel and I went to China because a director that I had worked with in Paris had shown me a book about a mountain called Huangshan in China. And the Chinese believed that if you could climb to the top of that mountain, it was a sacred mountain, you could get in touch with your core creativity. And I went, yes, this is what I need to do next. Climb a mountain in China. That's me. That's who I am. Um, it was a terrifying experience, but a wonderful experience. <laughs> I can maybe talk about that another time. Um, but the other thing that really made me leave America at that stage was I, I've always been an avid reader. And I had picked up a book called My Traitor's Heart by a man called Rian Milan. He was an Afrikaner, so he was Dutch, South African. And I had lived in South Africa when I was younger, when I was a young woman. And he was the descendant of one of the Afrikaners who was responsible for apartheid in South Africa. And because I had worked against apartheid when I lived there, it fascinated me. And he's, he was basically going throughout Africa, South Africa, to see what the effect of his great-grandfather's policy had been. And there was a chapter in it about a place called Msinga in Zululand and about a woman who had, uh, a woman who originally came from Rhodesia, who had moved to be with a man that she fell in love with and together they had helped the Zulus um, basically make the most of their land. The Zulus were basically goat herders. So what they did was they took all of these people, all these tribal people, and they shoved them into this small place that they called Zululand, and they had no resource. They didn't understand agriculture, so they didn't understand how to do anything other than herd goats. And when um, this man who was a farmer from Natal realized that these people were essentially starving, he decided to take his agricultural knowledge and move from uh, into, into Zululand and teach the Zulus how to farm. His wife, she became his wife. They, they lived with the Zulus as Zulus, um, spoke fluent Zulu and raised two sons. Sadly, he was murdered in a, a war between two tribes that took place there. And she decided to stay on now. Without her husband, she didn't have any protection and she didn't have respect because the Zulu warriors were all about machismo and being, they would follow her, him, but they weren't interested in her. So she'd been very much abused. So she was sitting, this man Rian Milan found her, she's very isolated, uh, living in a tiny Zulu um, outreach by the banks of the Chugela River. And he sat down with her, she built a fire and they'd been talking about literature because she was a highly educated woman. And they were talking about Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And then suddenly he just couldn't stand it anymore. And he said, look, why are you still here? Why don't you just go home? You know, you've got a wonderful family in Zimbabwe, just go home. And she looked at him very intensely and she said, because, Rian, I have looked into the heart of darkness, but I have seen a light. And so I say to you, as I say to all men, 
You can beat me. You can rape me. You can even kill me. I will not stop loving you. And when I read that, it was like something opened in me and I thought, my God, this is one of the most profound things I've ever read. This is the basis of all great religious teachings that gets lost somewhere along the way. This is what love is. So I determined to find her and talk to her. This is when I left the company. And through the Rand Daily Mail, which was Johannesburg's biggest paper, I got a PO box for her because she'd once been a journalist. And so she refused me. She finally wrote back. She refused me. She refused me. She refused me. It's like, I don't want to talk to anyone. I'm not interested in being interviewed, et cetera. So I told her about me and she said, well, good luck, basically. I'm not, you know, I've left my job. You know, <laughs> I live in the valley in America. I've got nothing else to do. I'm going to climb a mountain in China. She said, well, best of luck, but please don't get in touch with me again. I wrote to her from China and then I went to South Africa. And I lived in, you know, one of the little out, you know, suburbs, small suburbs outside of Johannesburg. Um, basically the Bundu, as they call it. And I wrote to her and I said, here's my number. I've got absolutely nothing to do with my life. I'm going to write. That's what I'm going to do. Um, and if you change your mind, I'll be here waiting and then I'll come. And so much time passed and it was, it was winter time in South Africa, which is actually really cold. I was alone in the house and I remember I was sitting, looking out the window at this big golden cat that was stalking a bird. And then just like that, the telephone rang in this empty house on this cold winter's day. And I picked it up and I said, Krena, that was her name. And she said, Anne-Marie. And I said, yes. And she said, you can come. I've spoken to the Sangorma, which is the witch doctor, and you can come, but I won't be responsible for your life. You know, if you die, remember there was a war going on there. I, I can't take responsibility. So she said, and the other thing is you can ask me, I can ask you anything I want, but you can't ask me anything. So I said, okay, do that's great. Um, and I <laughs> said, when I shall I come? She said, now. And I went, Oh, whoa. Okay, wait. Can I just wait till dawn? I've got to find a car. You know, I've got to hire a car. Anyway, she gave me directions and literally they were like, once you get off the, you know, the highway and you travel into Zululand, you know, for a few miles or whatever, you'll see on the dirt road, you'll see um, a rock that looks like a man's hat. Turn left there. Four, three rivers. You know, it was like... <laughs> It was terrifying. And she said, and whatever happens, don't stop for anybody. None of the cattlemen, you know, none of the men standing by the road. Don't stop because they'll kill you. Anyway, I found her ultimately, which is another long story. I feel like I'm taking up too much time, but I I did finally find her. I'm, I'm loving all of this. <laughs> you found the rock that looked like a hat. This is interesting, right? This is interesting. So at dawn the next day, I, I go to a small car rental company. It's run by this huge Afrikaans man, so the equivalent of maybe an American redneck. And I say, you know, I want to rent a car. And he says, okay, what kind of car? And I said, well, here's the thing. I'm going to, I'm going to journey into Zululand 
uh, to find somebody there. And uh, so I need something like sturdy and big, maybe German, maybe British. You know, give me something like armored that I can rely upon in this, you know, far out place. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going anywhere. You go there, these black men are going to come after you and kill you. So no, go home to your hubby, have some babies and live your life. I'm not going to help you. Anyway, that was his view of me. Little did he know I was too old to have babies at that point. But that little, point did, him, yeah. also, um, little did he know that wasn't going to stop you. It was a little bit of a backhanded compliment, I must say. Um, anyway, after hours, I managed to persuade him that I was going to do this with or without him. So he said, okay. I'll show you the car. You have to, you've got to take this one. So we go through his whole compound, right? And in the corner is a tiny blue Japanese car. And he says, here's your car. And I said, that's a Toyota Corolla. And he said, yes, it's a Toyota Corolla and it's going to keep you safe. And I said, how? And he said, big gas tank, you travel for miles. We'll forward whatever if you need it, but more important, worth nothing. Nobody's going to stop you and shoot you and take your car. And he was right. I mean, talk about wisdom from the most unlikely source. So I drove that Toyota Corolla all the way through Zululand, and I found her and lived with her and the Zulus. And I think I have a 12-year correspondence with her. From, from there on, oh, so then I come back here and that's it. I'm definitely going to write. I'm back now in, uh, you know. But didn't Krena tell you that you had to write? Yes. Well, what she, what she actually said was, when, when we were sitting on the banks of the Chugela River that one evening, two sacred Ibis birds were, were circling. And to the Zulus, that's a, a great sign from God. And so she pointed out and she said, you know, I've been sitting here thinking because you're like a piece of ancient rock, Anne-Marie. You're not, you, you've, you're old. You're not, you know, that's what you're like. And I said, I thought about that, but I didn't really pursue it. But then the first letter she ever sent to me, it said, I've been thinking about this strange God of ours and why he would take a piece of ancient rock and throw it into the midst of Babylon, Hollywood. And then she said, but I'm sure he has his reasons. Literally, I'm reading that letter, the telephone rings, and it's one of my ex-directors, and he said, I need your help. And out of that burst, I had to let go of writing, but it burst Palomar Pictures. But it, I, I went with it because that's what she said. You know, God has thrown you, or this great spirit of ours has thrown this piece of ancient rock into the midst of Babylon. He must know what he's doing. And I thought, well, there's a sign if ever I'm supposed to be in the industry. So I put writing aside and built another hugely successful company and launched all kinds of other directors. But Hollywood is at the core of it, a very broken industry, right? And you came in with your viewpoint and your ways of seeing people and making them whole. And you really have created some beautiful ripple effects through how you've shown up and what you've been able to birth in this business. And I think it's very full circle that now you're focusing on your writing because you've given so much to the community. It's time for us now to learn from your wisdom and your stories. And this has been 
such a gift to get to just have, you know, a, a, gl- a glimpse of all the, the knowledge you have. And I'm sure I've been very enraptured with all the stories you've told us today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to jump into our rapid fire section. So you're just going to tell me the first thing that comes to mind. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Never give up. What's the last book you read? I think it was by William Kruger. Something about a lake. It was brilliant. She's also been reading her own drafts probably for the past two years. Yes. What are you struggling with right now? Having the courage to reemerge into the industry with this new persona, with this new label, because um, I'm known for one thing, but Hollywood isn't very kind in people who uh, transform themselves or they know me as a producer. They know me as somebody who's built empires, but they don't know me as a writer. So they can be very dismissive of that. So it takes courage. What is bringing you joy right now? Writing. Mm, 100%. And having this conversation with you. Oh, I love that. Same. What's the best advice you've ever received? I don't think I can answer that because I don't think I've ever been given great advice. I think my journey has been about finding my way despite the fact that nobody was there to lead me or to show me or to um, help me along the way. I've always been a self-starter. That inner wisdom that has come from having to do it on my own has made me somebody who can give great advice to others. But I can't honestly tell you I've ever been. No, I can't. There's nobody's ever given me advice. Never. Well, it's lonely being a leader. Mm -hmm. It is, but you are rich and full of wisdom because of it. And so I'm going to give everyone sort of the takeaways from what we've learned here today. And I'm excited to implement them. This one's more figurative, but try writing with your non-dominant hand. Let your intuition guide you. Let your unconscious speak and tap into your intuition. And the Magus deck is a fantastic way to learn that skill, but it's really imperative to trust your gut and know that your body is speaking to you when you're making choices. Every person has something shiny that is so beautiful, and I'm going to take that one with me and credit you, and we need to help people see their shiny so they can utilize their potential. Pursue excellence and money comes. I'm in full accordance with following your passions and believing that the universe is going to support you. I will not stop loving you. Thank you, Krena, for that one. That is something I think we all need a lot right now is to, despite everything happening, still embody love. And you do that very, very well. And then finding wisdom from the most unlikely of sources. And so being listening as we're walking through life to know who's actually here to teach us. It's not always who we think. And thank you so much. This was really just like heartwarming and really powerful. Thank you so much. I may just I'll say one other thing. that One thing I've always believed that work is also love. What we do When we give ourselves to others, when we show up for other people, when we're generous with who we are, that is also love. And if you can do it in the work environment, I think you can really make great change in the world. I agree. I hope we all remember that one as we're looking to build a new future. Fingers crossed. I've been reflecting on a lot of these takeaways over the past few weeks, and I'd love 
to hear your favorite ones. So please tweet at me or DM me because I want to know what's resonating as we continue to share these episodes with you. Thank you all for listening. You can continue to listen and subscribe to Do The Work on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. It makes a huge difference if you can review, if you can share and rate this podcast. Thank you so much to Entertainment Speakers Bureau, to Angela, to Nichelle, to David, to Matt, to Smart Post Sound, Lenny for that musical intro, Lindsay for the graphics. I am forever in gratitude. I hope you all find and continue to live in your purpose. Thank you.